out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the British music journalist, author and presenter. It's the one and only Mick Wall, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Started writing... For Sounds in 77, worked in PR, then worked for Kerrang! magazine. Also was the founding editor of Classic Rock in 1998 and has written a billion books about musical artists and bands, including Lemmy, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, Ozzy Osbourne, and also his latest one, It's on the Eagles. This is a book which is titled Eagles. Dark Desert Highway, how America's dream band turned into a nightmare. That's just come out May 2023. So anyway, this is the interview after several minutes of interest in, but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Mick, it's over to you. Various um, moments along the road. I think the, the first one that was really significant in terms of, you know, the rest of my life uh, I was born in 58, so for me it was the Beatles, um, uh, She Loves You. Um, uh, it, it was like an out-of-body experience. It wasn't like listening to a great song that's catchy or, you know, some nice nursery rhyme type tune. Because I think I would have been four or five when She Loves You was a hit. Yes. Uh, it, it was it reminded the, the only other time I got a feeling like that as a child uh, was the first time I saw Doctor Who and that 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 fantastic theme music, you know, dang and dang, dang and dang. It just didn't sound like music. It sounded like something futuristic and electric and. And the Beatles going. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, yeah, yeah. That went through me like a lightning bolt. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, so that was that was definitely an awakening in terms of my God. There's there's music, and then there's whatever this is, you know. Um, and then uh, in terms of. You know, I guess making that transition from tunes you like, songs you like, to buying albums, maybe reading a music paper, something like that. That was uh, sort of 14, 13, 14. And it was David Bowie, um, Rod Stewart, Elton John. But it was, uh, you know, the early 70s, there was nothing really niche about anything. Um, you could buy a Led Zeppelin album and a Bob Dylan album, um, uh, uh, and 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 love Sly and the Family Stone and James Brown. There wasn't a kind of a, the only kind of delineation I remember at that age was sort of singles artists and albums artists. And and yeah. for me, the best of all were albums artists that also did amazing singles. Hence David Bowie and and uh, so on and so forth. Yes. Um, and did you and were your parents at all musical? Did they did they have yes. any influence on you in the terms of in terms of um, yes what they were playing and what they were into or an uncle who was a very good sax <laughs> saxophone player who was in a band that you went to see because sometimes people have those moments as well which have massive influences. Well, that was 
I was literally about to say there was one other element, and that was the fact that my father was a musician. Um, uh, Irish, Scots, and uh, had played professionally before he met my mother and sung. And then uh, by the time I came along, um, uh, that had whittled down to, you know, playing in pubs and Irish clubs, because um, by then he had to have a proper job, you know. Yes. And what musical um, instrument did he play? Uh, he could play anything, really, but it was all, it was like, you know, fiddles and accordions and bodrons and tin whistles and um, completely self-taught. And he had his own little outfit. And uh, they played regularly weekends, you know, be weddings, pubs, clubs. Um, but he had, there was a period where I don't know why, but I, in my mind, it's like from about the age of three or four, they would come back from a gig to the house at about 2 a.m. Always his place because it was his band. Um, and and they would immediately go in the lounge, build a big fire, pull out the whiskey and start playing again. And this would go on for an hour or two. And then they would stop. And that's when they would start to tell stories. Mm -hmm. This was all character led. I mean, even the music was about some crazy man on a hill somewhere, you know. Um, and the, these guys, you know, his band's comprised of there was him. His name was Danny, Big Danny, uh, quite short, and he was known as Big Danny. Um, there was Northern Ireland Jimmy. There was Snuffy Harry, Big Jock. Uh, and who else? A couple of Dave Harrigan, you know, very kind of all these rogues. And um, uh, my dad would insist my mother got me out of bed. So I would come down to listen to this music and in, they would insist I drank some beer, which would usually take the form of a shandy. A shandy. I was going to say, was it a shandy? Because they were, that was the first drink we all had, wasn't it? The, the shandy. It was. I think he was a bit disappointed that it wasn't just a straight Guinness. Because, of course, they did, you know, get me to taste that and laugh at the face I made. Um, I've got three, I'm the eldest of four. I've got three younger brothers. The next one down, he took to the beer straight away and he became a hero of my father's. But, um, yes, yeah, so he'd get me out. Uh, I didn't have any brothers till I was seven, so I was just I was the only child. And um all these IRA songs and rebel songs and you know all the rest of it. Uh, but then the stories. And these guys would tell stories, and literally the tears would be rolling down their face with hilarity, but also roguishness, you know, they would tell mm. these out ages stories you know tales from the road um and i uh i think there's always something innate if you're going to be a writer or someone that specializes in something like that there must be something innate inside you to build on but that was what that was what gathered it all 
um, uh, uh, and became a, a place where I could relate, you know. I, I mean, I didn't know half the jokes because obviously they were filthy and outrageous, but I couldn't stop laughing either because of their laughter. They were so joyous. Yes, uh, And also such naughty guys, you know. So years later when I started um, uh, writing reviews for Sounds magazine, um uh it was punk you know my first review was published in 1977 a review of the lurkers at the red cow in hammersmith i think me and john peel were the only people in the country that liked the lurkers um uh he was very fond of them i wasn't particularly fond of them i just didn't dislike them i thought they're okay a bit like an english ramones you know council estate ramones um so that's all I did for about the first year on Sounds. Every broken down, never heard of before or since punk band that was doing the rounds. You were there. What, so what did you do when you got to 16, though? Did you leave school or go to some, yeah? No, 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 no. I, I, I left school pretty much before my O-levels, my GCSEs. Yes, you could in those days. They couldn't get you out the door quick enough, could they? In the 70s. There was no way they could find you. You know, I mean, no mobile phones, no internet. In our house, we had one phone which sat in the hallway. And if it rang, my mother and father would not answer it. You know, it was like, you answer it. No, you <laughs> answer it. Yeah. Right. So um, I think because they were Irish immigrants, I always felt a bit on the run anyway, you know, like um that they weren't really part of it part of the fabric or sort of outside of things um, so where where were you where was your childhood home was that london i was born in hammersmith and then we lived in chiswick until i was 9 and then we lived in ealing um and um uh so i went to school in chiswick and then ealing um, I went to a grammar school, which was all about going to uni. But I had already decided by the time I was 15 that that would be a waste of my precious time because I was going to be a rock star. Oh, wow. A rock star. Brilliant. Well, it's, it's football or rock. Rock and roll, wasn't well, it? Well, literally it was because before I became really interested in uh, uh, rock music or, or, or album music. Um, you know, the, the 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 football team I loved was Manchester United. And, of course, the player I loved the best was George Best. Yes, and absolutely. Because he was very skillful, but because, you know, he, he looked like fucking Mick Jagger or... Um, <laughs> Or Mark Boland or something. Do you know what I mean? He 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 was pure rock and roll. I mean, before I knew what rock and roll was, there was George Best. People talk about Elvis. Um, for me, it was George Best and the Beatles. Um, yes, a good combination, actually. But you would have probably been supporting Man United at that transition period, the the Franco Farrell years, weren't you? When they were getting relegated and Tommy Doherty at this stage. So, you know, that was well, when I, no, you... I, well, I, I no, I came in at the end of Busby. Did I you? came in at the end of Busby because I was eight years old when the 66 World Cup uh, was on. Uh, and the very next year, 
And that's the big sort of football thing I remember on telly for very first ever time was the World Cup in 66. Um, and the very next year, Manchester United won the league. And the very next year after that, they won the European Cup. So those first three years of my kind of becoming a huge football fan, those were the years. Um, plus there was an Irish connection. You know, in Ireland, I don't know if you're aware, but, um, you know, English football was um, illegal. It was banned. It, it, you know, it wasn't... Uh, uh, you, what the fuck you don't play that here and you don't do anything you know there was one exception in ireland uh and that was manchester united um they seem to have a i don't really know what the detailed history is but they seem to have a high proportion of irish and scots players including a scots manager yeah uh, and that made it easier for immigrants like my parents to try and connect with living in this country because they could people talk about football and they could go oh manchester united you know see i know what i'm talking about you know <laughs> um, yes uh, but of course best with his hair and his beard and not turning up i mean absolute rock star Yes, absolutely. absolutely. No, I well, that was the reason I supported Man United passionately during the seventies. But you? Little, yes, I was. Really? I, I was very focused on Man United mainly because I used to hang out with my brother. I'm the youngest of three, and he was seven years older than me. And he hung out with uh, his little group who I wanted to hang he out with. He's well. closer to my age then. Yeah, and he had this uh, friend called Jenny Rusty, who I thought was just a goddess. I thought I love her. At the age of, I was quite young, and I heard her say, you know, she liked George Best Man United. I thought, well, I better support them if I'm ever ever going to marry this woman. <laughs> I was I was quite young, but little did I know that was probably in the early seventies that Man United were rubbish and they got relegated quite soon. But they were my first love, you see, and you can't you can't change that. So you go through that. No, whole... listen, I, I I lived through all those years, and that wasn't as bad as for me as living through the early Ferguson years. Um, uh, because until he won the FA Cup in 1990, there were three or four years there where, you know, it was tough being a Man United fan. And where I worked, um, it was mainly Arsenal supporters. And Arsenal were having a grand old time, you know, in the late 80s. Bastards. I remember when we beat them 6-2 in the League Cup, I think at Highbury in about 19, I'm going to say 1990. Um, yeah, I, I can remember that stuff better than I can remember what they did earlier this week, if you know what I mean. Yes. Well, for me, you know, just without going too far, but the 70s was Man United, then the 80s, I sort of didn't like football. And then then there was this kind of talking about Eric Cantona and then, you know, Roy Keane. And Another Schwein. rock star. See, and they, it was suddenly, and I was thinking, no, I'm not interested in football on board. I hated the 80s and all that kind of Wimbledon and all those thugs. It just didn't seem like very exciting. And then suddenly I started seeing Eric and it was like, oh, my God, my love of Alex, Roy Keane, you know, Schmeichel, the whole lot were just like, but 
yeah, Keen and Roy Keen, uh, Keen and Eric were just gods, you know. I'll never forget, you know, watching anyway, they were just amazing, weren't they? Amazing characters and you oh, know the, the passion, but I have no idea what's going on now. It just seems a bit back to the 70s. Yeah, I just I don't football just seems a bit weird. But to be honest, it was the 74 World Cup with Johan Cruyff and Naiskins that I absolutely adored. That was the the World Cup that was, it was my first World Cup, and it was a period where I just adored it really it was just brilliant so um yeah that was my football but then yeah like I said you sort of get a bit bored of relying on some other people to um give you happiness on a Saturday afternoon really or these days could be any afternoon any afternoon any time really yeah so so how did you sorry god I I do I you won't believe I've got all these books on that period of Man United in the 70s that 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 relegation period and going up and down and and it was just brilliant I loved it you know I thought there was just I mean you know they 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 got rid of him far too quickly and for all the wrong reasons you know falling in love he said didn't he falling in love with Mary Terrible. So, yeah. um, and they're yeah. still together, I think, aren't they? Well, Tom, Tom has passed away. Oh, he died, he, didn't he? he Sorry, yeah but, yeah. but they did stay together all their life. But apparently, his son never spoke to him again, which was a bit strange. But because it was a pretty, you know, it was real love, true love, wasn't it? You know, they stayed together until the end. But I love listening. Son never spoke to him again. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't forgive him for it. I suppose he was closer to his mum. So. Oh right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. gotcha. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's still it's a cool. So look, but but sort of going from wannabe football player George Best, aim high. I want to be Johan Cruyff meets you know, George Best. Um, then want to be a rock star. But then how does this writing appear when you haven't been to university well, to do a English degree? Well, um, I'd always been good at writing. Um, I remember when I got to grammar school. I must have been eleven or twelve, and. We had a new English teacher and he was explaining to us that he, he marked essays out of 20, which was new to us at the time. And he said, uh, he was explaining and he said, you know, so, you know, if you get 14 out of 20 from me, that's very good. That's like getting 70% in an exam. Okay. So I want you to adjust um and understand that's a good mark and uh, and someone said what would i have to do sir to get a 20 out of 20 and he sort of chuckled and said i've never given anybody 20 out of 20 it can't be done it's never been done and um I remember this is like olga corbett really now isn't it the perfect 10 yes. <laughs> yes and of course it had never been done until it was done. Um, and I did an essay. Um, I think it was about a time traveller. Yeah. And I didn't even finish it. Because you know what homework is like. You know, it's like, oh, fuck's sake. I've been doing this for half an hour, you know. <laughs> um, so I handed it in. Uh, and I got 20 out of 20. Um, and... It, it it was lovely, but I have to say it didn't come as a huge shock because it was like my secret power. It was the one thing I was actually good at. Um, uh, and I remember after that, the English teacher fell in love with me a bit and, and I took f- complete advantage. So whenever he'd set an essay, 
I would say, oh, sir, I, could I do this one as a poem? You know, I feel a, I feel there's a poem, you know, because a poem would take me exactly three minutes to write, you know, yeah. and I was after reading Shoot magazine or or whatever it was, you know. Gold. So I just always had that knack. Um, and I always say I think the key to any kind of writer, but if you want to be any any good, um, you have if you always to be a good writer, I think you have to be a great reader. Um, and I that has that's beyond addiction with me. It's uh, I mean, if I was to show you this room, I I've actually just tidied it because we had uh, we had some visitors, but um. My life is cluttered with books. Yes, columns, columns of piles of books. Yeah. Oh, dangerously, dangerously high. Well, I've got, I've got three shelves in here, bookshelves. So, right behind where you are now, there's a ton. Some over here. So, well, who were you? What were you? Write, what were you reading apart from Shoot Magazine, which had favorite? Was well, normally favorite meal? Didn't didn't it? Favorite color. You know, most difficult opponent. Favorite meal: steak and chips. Steak and chips. <laughs> or a cocktail to start. Um, <laughs> it uh, was a balanced diet. Retire yeah. at twenty-seven. <laughs> um, well, you know the usual uh, young person stuff, but I also loved science fiction. So all those Marvel comics and DC and, um, but quite quickly I got onto, you know, Arthur C. Clarke and um, I'm trying to think now. Um, oh, uh, what was his name? Stranger in a Strange Land, Heinlein. Right. Like people like that. But by the time I was sixteen. I had become very serious and pretentious. So I was reading Colin Wilson. Nice. Um, uh, Jack Kerouac? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I I didn't get to Kerouac in fairness. I left home at 17, and and that's when I first got into Kerouac um, on the road, all that stuff. And Um, Burroughs, the Naked Lunch? I couldn't ha- I didn't get I couldn't get my head around naked lunch. So I was in my early twenties. And then once I got my head around it, it never came back. I mean, I I I I loved Burroughs. I have so many of his books and items and I went to see him live. He did um it was called The Little Bit Ritzy in Brixton. And this must be about 82. And Genesis P. Orridge, um, who I knew through my flatmate, um, had organised a gig. Who was your flatmate? Sandy Robertson. Sandy was a a very well-known sounds writer in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, He'd come down from Glasgow. He had a fanzine called White Stuff. And he was a Patty Smith freak. Um, but then by the time he and I were sharing a flat, 
we were both of us a bit over the rainbow at that point and um uh into a much darker world of heroin and Alistair Crowley oh obviously <laughs> um but you know trying to get the artifacts you know the 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 obscurities and these days you can go on eBay and do a bit of googling you know but back then you'd literally have to seek out some creepy old shop in chalk farm or somewhere you know um uh, so yeah all that kind of stuff all the all the obvious ones that any self-respecting teenage nihilist would read um i think in terms of my own writing the only reason i gravitated towards music journalism was really I just didn't want a normal job. You know, I, I I did not want a normal job. And I did not want to be a music journalist. Just sounded so boring to me. Um, you know, you go and have a great night, see your favorite band. Now you've got to the next day you have to write about it. But um it seemed like an easy life, you know. I mean, I was so ignorant. I mean, I was 18 when I applied. Uh, this seemed like an easy life or easier. Yes, and why? Um, why? Why sounds rather than they had an ad, they ran an ad. They ran an ad uh, in 1976 towards the end, saying sounds needs writers. Keywords: no experience necessary. That sounds like me. Yes. So I rang them. And I, what I hadn't realised was uh, it was the beginning of the whole punk thing, and, and they were basically looking for younger writers that wouldn't look down their nose at the Pistols or the Damned, uh, which most you know writers in their mid-20s were, you know, they wanted to interview Bob Dylan or... Morris you know, well, Nick Nick Kent, I did an interview with him, and he said that when he started in that 72, that the, the writers at the, I think it was the NME probably, was still waiting for the Beatles to reform. And he was thinking, no, they're not going to reform this. That's kind of gone. We want to this next stuff. And those people going, no, we, we this isn't real music. You, you could suddenly see that kind of, even at mid-20s, people could be very old. Well, it, by the end of 76, I was still wearing flares. But within three months, I would never wear flares again. Um I was still wearing cord green corduroy jeans at the end of 77, uh, 76. And by, you know, by February 77, I wouldn't be ever seen in such things again, considered them ideologically unsound. <laughs> um, uh, so, so what I hadn't realised is they, they, they wanted two things. I, I worked in an employment agency. I should have understood. We would run ads all the time for the It was like, literally, we're, we're looking for a general clerk paying enormous amount of money every year. Um, no particular skills required. And of course, you get loads of people applying. The job didn't even exist. You know, we just did it to get people applying. And then you could find whatever job they could actually do. Um, this was similar. They were fishing for people that uh, uh, weren't 
obsessed with the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac um, and hoping to interview Rod Stewart um, uh, and wanted people that were more in touch with because there were so many bands so quickly. Yes. And who uh, was your first band artist that you interviewed? I think that was the Lurkers. The Lurkers. Yeah, yeah. Very strange. I mean, I mean, I, you know, so, so I, what they wanted was people that got that, but they also wanted people around the country. And so I rang them from a phone box and they said, oh, yeah, great, great. Well, um, uh, send us something in, write something, send it in just to review. Um, and they said, and whereabouts do you live? And I said, London. And you could almost hear the like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Writers in London, you know, yeah, we got a lot of those. <laughs> if I'd have said Manchester, I think I'd have probably got a cover story, you know. Um, yes. But I sent in a treatise on Bowie. I sent a few weeks later when that didn't work, I sent in an album review of Brian Ferry's solo album In Your Mind. And when that didn't work, I sent in a review of Utopia, Oops, Wrong Planet. And when that didn't work, I fucking gave up. And a few months later, uh, I used to smoke in those days, uh, drunk. I was looking for some matches in a drawer. And I found the original letter from Sounds asking me to call them. And uh, because I was drunk, I thought, ah, yeah. So I rang them. And went through, it was like I did, it was like they'd never heard of me. I just went through the whole thing again. And where do you live? London. Well, why don't you send something in? So um I can't remember what I sent in, but this time it was a bit more positive. And the guy said, um, why don't you try a live review? What sort of groups do you like? And I went, Bowie, Iggy, yeah, <laughs> Stones. <laughs> And he went, we've got the lurkers at the Red Cow in Hammersmith. What do you reckon? And inside I'm going. <laughs> I went, yeah. Good one. So, um, off I went, wrote the damn thing, heard nothing, rang up. You know, it felt like the millionth time. I said, did you get the review? And he said, yeah, it's very good. It's in the next issue. And I went, what? what um and that was the start it came out in october 77 mm -hmm. and i impulsively quit my job about two months later and existed on about 12 quid a week for nearly a year um um and 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 here really is the link between uh stories my dad rogues uh and how i got involved in writing about heavy rock and heavy metal um I, I was not in any sense a heavy metal fan um i mean by 1977 78 like everybody else i've got spiky black hair i've got uh narrow tight jeans and a leather jacket not oh, punk um well, I was never like that. I was more of a sort of literary punk. Um, uh, but what I discovered was that 
um, in the summer of 78, the regular sort of rock writer on sound was on holiday or something. And they asked me if I would in, um, review a group called UFO, mm -hmm. who were very big at the time. I knew absolutely nothing about and it was the Hammersmith Odeon. It was a good gig. I mean, I used to like Thin Lizzy. And like I said, there wasn't any niche or snobbishness when I was a kid. It was either album stuff or singles. Um, uh, so I had no built-in prejudices. Uh, and I thought UFO were really good. They were more sort of Thin Lizzy than Iron Maiden, if you know what I mean. And afterwards, I got taken back. I didn't realize it was such a big band at the time. They had all kinds of people working for them. And they just went overboard and made a fuss because music journalists in those days were like royalty. Yes. Especially for these bands that wouldn't get in the NME. Um, and the next thing, I'm in a limo with the singer and a couple of the guys and two page three girls. Next thing, we're at a party. Um, I've literally got like one pound fifty in my pocket, you know, and I'm it's two a.m. I'm a, I don't even know where somewhere in London. It's a free bar. I'm like a free bar. <laughs> yes, you don't get that with the lurkers at the Red Cow. Um, and I'm and I met that night. I met George Best. He was there. Alex Hurricane Higgins was there. Rick Parfit from Status Quo was there. And it was that crowd. Um, uh, various other sort of newsos, rock types. Um, but Page Three Girls and George Best. I remember uh, Johnny Rotten was there. And, um, and I just couldn't, you know. So literally the next day, I thought, you know what, I might do more on these rock bands, you know, because yes. they, they, no one does it. They don't get it. They don't get the attention. They deserve some of these guys. So I did it because I was opportunistic, but also I had a fucking great time, David. Yes. You know, one of my previous trips to that was going to Bradford uh, with the Lurkers. Was that the one in 12 Club? Oh, it might. Well, yeah, part, it was like a pub. Don't forget, this is 1978 or something. I just remember the la it was a Sunday in Bradford in 1978. And we drove up in a Mercedes van sitting on the equipment. Nice. Six hours. And I remember the... It was a bit like, it's a bit like bad news, wasn't it? Let's face it. That, they... They had, they, had, they had luxury compared to what we had. Um, I remember the landlord of the pub. My name's Malcolm Fairplay, and Fairplay by name and Fairplay by nature. You all right with me, lads? I'll be all right with you. Of course, the lurkers are like, fuck. <laughs> um, so they played to about 20 people, and we all slept on the floor of the pub. Um so to go from that to limousines and George Best and free bars, I just thought, yeah, you know, I get paid the same money. Uh, this is more fun. This is more fun. Did you did you go through a Hawkwind phase in the seventies, by the way? Because that you know that Hawkwind 
sort of London scene with people like Lemmy and the guy yeah. who was in the Pink Fairies. Did they were they all part of your kind of murky orbit at that stage? Yes, um, but only as a pup. You know, I mean, we would go to Portobello Road on a Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon, actually, um, and you'd see, you know, dodgy Bill through a quid deal of dope, you know, which would turn out to be henna, you know. Um, <laughs> and right down the bottom of Portobello Road, underneath the flyover there, uh, bands would play, including Hawkwind, Pretty Things, uh, Soft Machine. Oh, they might have been gone by then. But um, Lemmy was a very well-known figure, not a figure of high esteem. Or right. one of those, oh, God, here he comes, look the other way, you know, because, you know, he's always trying to borrow a quid or or he just he just seemed mo- very undesirable, you know. Um, uh, now, cut to cut to seven, eight years later, and I'm the publicist for Hawkwind. Um, that must have been 19... I'm going to say 1979, um, and they were still big. We did five nights at Hammersmith Odeon, and Doll by Doll were the support on the tour, and they were very dark and intense. But up against Hawkwind, they were like baby seals up against a whale. You know, I mean, they thought they were being kind of trippy and weird, and Hawkwind would walk in and just fucking march all over them. I mean, Hawkwind were completely out of control. I mean, I remember Simon King, the drummer, first night. We hardly knew each other. He had this uh, little fingernail, which was like a claw. And as I'm talking, he goes, yeah, he pulls out this big white packet. And with his claw, he digs out a big hunk of powder. Uh, it's not kind of like... Which, you want a line or it's nothing like that is and then literally shoves his claw up your nose because you're a, you're a good bloke you know? and you're like ah, ah, cheers cheers ah, yeah <laughs> um and then i remember the third night on the tour <clears throat> we were in edinburgh and dave brock the leader he just he just looked he looked like a homeless person crossed with a dustbin man. You know, he used to wear, I mean, I'm wearing this now, but he used to wear those sort of dustbin men, like old man step toe. He had that English kind of... English gloves. We all had those yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. He was big <laughs> brock and he was so dodgy. Um, if you look at the credits for Silver Machine, it doesn't even mention it. It mentions a completely obscure name. You have no idea who it is. It's not a member of Hawkwind. It's Dave's wife. Right tax you know gosh um, yes so i'm checking out and dave suddenly in the morning you know you're checking out and dave suddenly pitches up next to me and as a joke i went oh mate uh the bins around the back and he went you're fired and i was like oh, <laughs> i don't want to see you on the fucking bus anymore all right you're fired and he walked away I was like, I'm only joking. <laughs> Next thing I, because there's no mobile. Next thing I'm on, I'm on a payphone ringing the office going, he's just fired me. What do I do? I went, 
just ignore him. He'll forget about it in a minute after he's had his millionth joint, you know. So right. yes. Was Stacey exactly- here still with the band at that stage? No. Um, she'd gone away and got married and lived in France, but she came back for the Hammersmith Odeon shows. And she was absolutely, I got to know her better years later. Uh, cut to the mid to late 90s, and I did a big story on them for Mojo. And, of course, I went back and found them all, including Stacia. She lives in Ireland now, I think, or she did last time I spoke to her. And um, she was she was lovely. She was really lovely. Uh, Lemmy, I actually became very good friends with for many, many, many years. Um, when my mother died, my mother died quite young, and I was 28 at the time. And I did not, the hardest part was bumping into people and them not knowing how to deal with it. So you spend all your time sort of comforting others. And uh, so I just never, I didn't even want to talk about it, you know. But I was always out at gigs in those days and places, and and so was Lemmy. And uh, next time I saw him, he said to me, he took me aside and said, I heard about your mum, I'm really sorry. And I said, oh, yeah, that's okay. okay." And he said, no, 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 I... He goes, I know that's what you say, he said, but I know it's not okay. And he started talking to me about this. And I just stood there and listened. And um yeah, it was it was it was very moving and very touching because nobody, not even in my own family, knew how to address it. I mean, what do you say to someone? Oh, I'm very sorry, you know you know so he was an extraordinary guy and um and we got to know each other very very well indeed um, yes. uh, and then i wrote a book about him after he died we, i was working on it before he died and then he fucking died um uh and while i was doing that i got back in touch with stacia because she and lemmy you know they they had a little thing for a while yes um, and she was fantastic, lovely lady, really nice. Yeah. Yes. So look, as, uh, sorry, just to sort of get back to your, you're in the you're with Science for several years, and then you start a PR company. Is that right? Not quite. Um, I was with Sounds for about a, uh, fifteen months, and during that time, because I was so skint. I just couldn't I couldn't get going with sounds. I wasn't good enough. I'd get a, a consistent amount of reviews, but very few features. And I took a job for a little while at Step Forward Records, um, which was Miles Copeland and Mark Perry and groups like Chelsea and Alternative TV and The Fall and people like that. Yeah. Um, and then... I got offered a job at a PR company called Heavy Publicity. And um, I'd just been sacked from Step Forward for for persistent absenteeism. Oh, I dear. Him. Was that Miles? No, no, Miles was a darling. It was the, one of the pricks that worked for him, who shall remain nameless as he is prickless. Yes. Uh, I it did was an interview with Miles last year. He's such a he was such a nice guy, actually. Oh, I lo- I loved Miles. He was he. Le- I mean, I just people didn't get him. I thought he was fantastic, 
but it was in that really awful sort of proto-punk aggression period where anything American was simply intolerable. It was, you couldn't, you couldn't make space for it. But I used to love talking to him, you know, um, he used to crack me up. Yes, he he had some great stories when he was that doing. He tried to put a gig on with, uh, and Lou Reed was supposed to be performing, and they he phoned up, and the guy said, "Oh, Lou's Lou's in the toilet." He said, "That's okay, I'll wait." And he said, "He's been there for three days." <laughs> <laughs> he never showed for this concert because his first band was like Wishbone Ash, wasn't he? He was managing yep. them, and then he. Yep. It went all wrong. Then he started doing a bit of punk stuff after thinking that's my music career over with. And then obviously the police and IRS and REM and the rest of this history. And then he buys a French castle in France. And, you know, it's a bit like that film with David Essex, isn't it? And uh, Larry Hagman. That will be the day, you know, and Stardust. Stardust. you have to buy the castle eventually, but that's a disaster. That's when it's all gone (laughs) wrong. No, Miles is fun. You know, Miles was really nice. Yeah, I liked him a lot. He was a good guy. Um, uh, uh, so the 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 PR thing, if you want to hear that story, um, they did, you know, Black Sabbath and Dire Straits and uh, Rory Gallagher and, and and Journey and all sorts of people. Were PR companies in those days, was that a new-ish thing? being outside the record label from they did PR start within the record label and then did it start to come out of the record label and independent PR companies started how what was the history of PR companies six the 60s because um uh up until the 60s everything was in-house but you didn't have the media you know you didn't have music papers uh, becoming such a significant, having such a significant impact on the market until the 60s. Um, You know, until the Beatles, I don't think maybe Cliff Richard, but newspapers just didn't cover this stuff. You know, the top of the pops and all these things only came along in the 60s. There was no Radio 1 till 67. Um, So... Uh, there wasn't much managing to do. It was more servicing the press than trying to control them, manipulate them, guide them. Um, uh, But even back then, you know, people like Andrew Lou Golden, uh, he started out as a publicist. He was a publicist independently working for the Beatles. Um, and there were one or two others like that, sort of real um, uh, trendsetters, if you like. But originally it was the promo net, the guys that got you on the radio, you know, guys that bribed people to play their records. Yes. Um, and, and then so there, there were promotional people who their whole job was to make that happen, television, radio, and that was about... Um, persuading people to do what you wanted them to do i think cherry uh, vanilla has one of those stories doesn't she for david bowie well she was his publicist and some other people's uh, wasn't she the publicist for pork or she was in pork she probably yeah so she was around that side and and then said she would give anybody a 
um, basically a blowjob if they play his record. And that was that was part of the gig, I guess. It was the 70s. Well, well in, the, in heavy publicity, <clears throat> yeah, we would cultivate writers, relationships with them. Um, uh, 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 and so there were two or three that I can tell you right now, um, we would bike over the records to be reviewed. And it was it was um, quid pro quo. You know, we would have some bands that the writers were desperate to work with, interview, photograph, whatever. And then we had quite a lot that no one would touch with the barge pole. And we would just essentially say, look, you do me a favour with you know, the nobodies or whatever they were called, and I'll go and get you Dire Straits or whoever it might be. Yes. Uh, but it went way beyond that. You know, there, there were obviously lots of free lunches, lots of trips. If you had an artist that you just couldn't fucking give away, you did a trip. You know, you, you flew 12 journalists to Glasgow and got them out of their fucking minds before they can get off the plane and just throw money at them and drugs and everything. And, and they'd write about your band. Um, but it, it reached a certain level with us where there were two or three very favoured journalists who I would sellotape a gram of coke. You remember, I don't know if I've got, I haven't got any records here, but you know the old record, the album, it's big, 12 by 12. Yes. Pull out the record in the bag. Yeah. We would sellotape a gram of coke to the bag. Nice. And put it in the seat and send it. So I'm sending it to you. Hi, David. Enjoy this. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. Uh, and guess what? We would get a lot of fuck. Never got a bad review when we did that. Not once. Uh, another time there was a guy working for one of the big weeklies. Uh, he was from Edinburgh and he still liked to go back now and again. Um, and we had a group called The Flies who their very first single had attracted a lot of attention in the enemy and places like that. And then after that, it just couldn't give them away. They just never, it just, it was a one and done, you know, but we were still being paid to do their PR. I couldn't get anybody. I, I tried every, tr the cocaine, everything, nothing was working. So I noticed they were doing a show in Edinburgh. So I rang this guy and I said, uh, fancy a drink tonight? Oh, yeah, sure. Where should we go? And I named the venue in Edinburgh. I can't remember. It was like Barbarella's or something, you know. And he went, oh, yeah. I said, look, here's the deal. I'll send a car now and I'll meet you at Heathrow and we'll be there in an hour or two. They'll be playing, but they'll be done by 11 o'clock. And then, my friend, we shall partay. <laughs> and we did and we we stayed at his mum and dad's place i never had a fucking hungover like that in my life i probably did um and he reviewed them and he gave them a great review um so 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 i think it came out of promotions people and as the music press became really uh crucial at a certain point um record companies had big budgets for these things yeah so therefore the independent publicists had big budgets 
And the idea was is that it's, it's the same now, really. You know, if you if you stay in house, you're one of you know it, with my books, I have an in-house publicist. They're fucking useless because they've got my book and everybody else's book, and all they do is send it out. And if someone likes it and reviews it, they take the credit. And if absolutely fuck all happens, they're like, oh, I sent it out. <laughs> you know, you, you hire an independent. Right. And you're paying them and they better get fucking results or you will tell everybody else what a pile of shit they are and then they won't work again. Um, it was complete, a complete different dynamic. Very, yes, absolutely. There's no no pension plan with that one. So look, so as the eighties <laughs> progressed, you know, we, we you know, because you mentioned, you know, psychic TV and that kind of post-punk world and and craziness. Did you did you just find yourself moving away from that and just getting into the the more rock scene than 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 that kind of because there was also another band and and I don't know if you've been picking up on all these people who've been writing books and making films like a band called Rima Rima. Did you ever come across this kind of obscure band? They only lasted eight months in 1979. That had Marco Peroni, various people who were all on then 4AD records, and um, Dorothy Max Pryor, who who was part of Psychic TV for a short time. So did, I just wondered if you'd ever you had sort of kept a foot in there or was it after that ufo experience it was like right this oh, is where no, no. I, I kept a foot everywhere i mean i was very close to the 4ad guys before they were 4ad they were beggar's banquet um and beggar's banquet began as a shop in ealing where i used to as a teenager buy some of my first ever uh, lps um uh, so no, I, I may well have I, the name rings a bell. I may well have heard their record at the time, but um, I did a lot of work with Four AD. Um, uh, it was a, sort of a smaller world, you know. I mean, it was it was um, it was a smaller world, smaller industry. Only four music papers. People got to know your name fairly quickly. Yeah, so you had the gatekeepers, as you say. Four weeklies, and then you had the John Peel show, Tommy Vance, you know, Kitchens uh, and Janice Long. And the NME, because they were so, they were like the fortress of solitude. You know, they, you just couldn't go to them with Hawkwind or Black Sabbath. Well, you could, you could force it. And then what you'd get is Paul Morley coming along and using it as a wonderful tool to completely destroy them and, and tell you about the true history of rock and roll, you know. Um, um, and it it, it was co- completely counterproductive. But it, it, it sounds and Melody Maker in particular, and then a little while later, Record Mirror, who did do Hawkwind, um, stepped into that gap deliberately, knowing that um, the NME might run an interview with Freddie Mercury with a headline saying, what was it? Is this man a prat? Is this man a prat? Um, Melody Maker would put him on the cover, and their writer would be at front row Madison Square Garden, fucking having a wonderful time writing about it. Yes. Still, all these people that desperately wanted to read about it. And I, I was an NME person, but even I, by the late 70s, particularly the early 80s, even I just got weary of. Um, 
Morley and Penman and that that whole. Yes. So I think Chris Roberts, he started, was he in sound, on sounds at one stage? I think so, yeah. Chris. Yeah. Yes. I, I don't know Chris terribly well. I think he was on sounds for a while. He may even have done some stuff for Kerrang later on. And then was it Alan Carr who was also, um, oh, was that the Melody Maker editor, wasn't it? He just did a book recently. Alan Jones. Jones, that's the one, yes. Alan so, Jones was a fantastic writer. He was a fantastic, it is, but he was always, uh, he was also a great journalist. Um, there's a fantastic picture of Ian, which I reminded him of a few years ago, of him, I'm going to say the late 70s, and he's been sent to New York to do a piece on Lou Reed. And it must have been a jaunt because Pete Silverton, who died recently, bless him, he was on sounds at the time. And he'd also been on the same trip to interview Lou Reed. And there was a picture. <laughs> and the picture, and I think this is Lou Reed when he was fucking Lou Reed. I mean, yeah, he's been in the toilet for three days and he doesn't give a shit what paper you say you're from. Lou Reed's standing there in all his leather and crazy fucked up three days in the toilet, you know, sunglasses on indoors and jonesy is standing in front of him with sort of curly hair point in his hand spilling everywhere <laughs> clearly pissed ranting at, here's lou reed and here's alan jones ranting at him and then just in the back back of the just behind you can see sort of leaning on the bar looking kind of cool is pete silverton you know like waiting for Lou to notice him, you know. <laughs> of course, he never, Lou didn't notice him, and Alan came away with a fucking great story. Um, yes. Well, it was quite interesting. I think when Chris was talking about interviewing Lou, he would often say, you know, when he made those sweep, like people have been saying this, and Lou would say, well, what people? Name them, name them. But he was like, oh, God. Or oh, yeah. these questions started well, but actually this is getting weirdy, you know, did tedious now and you know he said as a person to interview he was very hard work but um he kept you on your toes and you never forgot a Lou Reed interview so there you yeah go. yeah I, I interviewed him once myself and uh I I, I laughed I just laughed and laughed and laughed because I love meeting people like that you know um I ghosted a Don Arden's memoir you know Don Arden was yes. really the guy who held dangled Steve Huh? He dangled someone out the window, didn't he? Robert Stigwood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As he said to me at the time, he said, the story gets told of how I uh, hung St Stigwood by his legs. Because we didn't hang him by his legs. He said, we picked him up, one guy by the legs and one guy by the arms, and we showed him the ground. We held him that way and showed him the ground. And then we lifted him back and lay him on the floor. I said, what did he do? He goes, he shat himself. And you can <laughs> see it coming out of his trousers. I said to him, Robert, you fucking disgust me. Um, I'm howling listening to this story because I live for stories. Uh, my dad could have been Don Arden, you know. My 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 dad could have been um, any of these over the top characters that 
you know, one of the reasons I loved Lemmy so much was I think there was a, a certain dad quality, um, meaning they just don't give a fuck. In the late 60s, when the whole IRA thing really, really was toxic in this country, my dad drove this big Humber car and he had it painted in the colours of the Irish Republican flag. He must have got stopped every fucking day by the police. All right, Paddy, where are you going then? Got any bombs? And he'd be like, oh, sure, I've got five now in the boot. How many can I do you for? You know, he, <laughs> he would get into scraps. He was he was just a bastard, you know. Um, so uh, Lou Reed, um, my week beats your year. I'm like, yes, I know it does. <laughs> Go on. Come on, Lou. Um, I wasn't quite like that, but I just delighted in the whole thing, you know. I love these people. Yes, absolutely. So then as the 80s progressed, we had, you know, with Thatcher 79, the Falkland War, the, the miners' strike, there was Green and Common, we we're going to be nuked. And then that kind of world of a new sound, you know, the Blitz Kids, new romantic music, MTV. How did you then... You know, heavy metal at this stage, you know, we had the classic three albums by Motorhead and then things weren't going so well for them once they got rid of their producer and Fast Eddie produced that third album. So how was it for you navigating that 80s period? Well, um, easy. Um, because I wasn't, a, you know, I was I didn't live or die by metal. Um huge jazz fan i mean at this point i was my two main preoccupations were heroin and jazz um the era of miles davis coltrane art pepper um sonny rollins i mean i'll just you name it i mean it was my absolute passion but i never wrote about it um at the time, I was writing for Sounds, and so I remember I did a lot on Rockabilly for a while. Um, was this kind of Stray Cats? Um, yes, Stray Cats, Blue Cats, Pole Cats, uh, the meat, the Meters, Meteor, the Meteors. Yes. King um, Kurt. Oh, so there was Psychobilly, wasn't there as well? Psychobilly, that was the me Meteors. Yes. Psychobilly, yeah. All of that. I was your guy for all of that. Um, but I was also, uh, you know, the whole Blitz Kids thing, heavy publicity by 1980. Um, we were doing Thin Lizzy and their managers also did Ultravox. And the link was Midjure. Yes. Midjure played in Lizzy and co-wrote with Phil Liner on his solo album, a song that eventually became the top of the Pops theme tune. Um and Midge was also involved in Visage. And it was through Midge <laughs> that for about six months, I did the PR for Visage. Uh, and this is when um, Steve Strange was on the door at the Blitz. Who, else was, who else was in Visage? Who Rusty was, um... Egan, Midge. It was all those guys. You know, but, but the idea was they would be faceless and this new kid, who was a male model, Steve Strange. He was going to be the front of it. Um, and Steve said, come down to the club. And I'm like, because I knew they had this door policy. 
And I definitely didn't look like a Blitz kid. And I said, yeah, I can't. He said, no, no, we'll, we'll make exceptions for you. So <laughs> I turned up and uh, all these poor bastards that looked like David Bowie and Brian Ferry were being turned away. And Mick Jagger, apparently. Did he? Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Yes, yeah, so uh, it's, it's kind of the famous story. I think it was probably one of them that said, no, you can't come in, which... Must have been embarrassing. Yeah, but what a story! I mean, it just just it's, it's a great story. Lord to the club, we are we turned down Mick Jagger. That's yeah. better than saying this is where Mick Jagger goes. You know? Yeah, absolutely. But, absolutely. So I turned up and I I I think I was about to be thrown to the pavement when Stephen, no, he's all right, he's all right, leave him alone. Yeah. So I went in and um, I thought, man, I, I came too late. If I was 16, this would have been my fucking world right here, you know. And did you go to places like Alice in Wonderland? Was there another club by a guy called Christian Paris who did another? In fact, he did a book recently as well. Yeah, so pretty. This this particular publication that came out, hmm. they're all doing it. It, it rings, a, the, his name rings a bell. I don't remember the Alice in Wonderland. Yes, apparently um, Lemmy, Lemmy used to go there quite a lot. He'd be seen at the bar drinking. <laughs> I don't think there's a nightery in London Lemmy wasn't regularly seen at. Because don't forget, also in the 80s, um, the licensing hours were still really strict. Pubs closed at 11. Um, uh, if you wanted a drink after 11, you either had to go to a club um or or go into one of them restaurants in Soho that as long as you order a, some chips or something, you know, you, you can booze. Yes. Uh, uh or there was a hotel called the the we used to call it the bucket of blood. What was it fucking called? It'll come back to me in a minute. Um uh in uh Oh, fucking this one up. I, if I could remember, it would sound more impressive. Yes, there was there was the place that Jeffrey Bernard used to go to a lot, wasn't there? Called but the pub, uh, the French, or or you mean the clubs, the Connaught? There was he used to go to one of those pubs that they. It was run by a guy called Muriel Belcher, wasn't it? A Norman, and it was oh, called, oh the was coach, the... coach and horses in Soho. Yeah, the the Muriel one you're thinking of was the club, the Colony Room. The Colony, that's the one. I I, I have been there myself. The, the the Colony was literally just above where the Grout Show is now. Right. Except unlike the Grout Show, um, you know, where everybody knows your name, they don't, but, you know, it's quite friendly. The Colony was, you know, you had to go up these fucking stairs by the time you got to the top, you know, you might be quaking unless you were one of the in crowd because that woman would sit on the stool. She'd go, what do you fucking want? Be <laughs> yeah. all right. I just want a drink. Wait, better fucking hurry up then. You know, she called everybody cunt or wanker, um, which was fairly accurate, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, that's where Francis Bacon used to go and oh, Tom yeah. Baker and, and that crowd. So, yeah. so as the mid-80s appeared, then we had Live Aid. What was that kind of period like for you? Were you still writing or PRing at this stage? Well, well what happened was um, 
I, after heavy publicity, I went back to writing for sounds and some other people. And then I got offered a job at Virgin Records as a press officer. And this was the era when the Human League were having their Don't You Want Me Baby and Simple Minds, Japan. Uh, and then and then just a little bit after Culture Club, Blue Rondo, Alaturk. Um, right. So we were all about the face and smash hits. And Was that Chris Sullivan? or Chris was... Sullivan was Blue Rondo. Right. Also had a, a club, like I can't remember, but but this was the sort of end time of my dreadful heroin period, and I did get sacked um because of that. Yes. Uh, which was a shame because I was uh, I'd just done the cure, as it were, and I was um I was really healthy and 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 I stayed that way. But was um, it the 12 steps? No, I just stopped. It was the it was the fifty gates of hell I'd been through, you know. Um, no, I just I mean I had I had to help with uh, the withdrawal, but no, I didn't I didn't see anybody or discuss anything. Um it wasn't really on the table so much back then. There wasn't you know, these days you can go to NA or one of these places. I don't remember anything like that existing back then, or, or if it did, I didn't know about it. It wasn't like now where you can pick up your phone. Oh, NA, you know, how do I get help? You know, yes, it wasn't that you either because Lemmy Lemmy's drug advice was quite strict, wasn't it? He was really he hated heroin, didn't he? So much he lost a girlfriend. He him, lost yeah. his girlfriend in the bath. So how come you managed to have a friendship with him during that period? Um, well, I didn't really drink. Did I? I just wondered because he was really, he was so angry about heroin, wasn't he? He was really, you know, he said speed, brilliant, acid, fine, smoking, great, Jack Daniels. He just said, oh. he just said it made you such a dog, didn't he? He said you were thieving. Listen, he wasn't wrong. I mean, you know, I, I have nothing good to say about it. Um, uh, you know, there is nothing but downside to it. Like all drugs, there's a, a initial fun period, but it wears off relatively quickly. And then you, and then there's no redeeming factors to it whatsoever. It's a life of absolute hell. Um, and uh, I didn't, I didn't, um, I, I was never fully in love with that idea that this is all there was. Well, this is me now. I'm a junkie. That, that's yes. it. Good night. I, I always felt it was just a phase I was going through, you know. Um, just turned out to be much longer than it should have been. Um, but after that, the point is, is that after that, I I really changed. I mean, I, I uh, didn't do any drugs. I did like drinking. And around that time, do you remember Flexi Pop magazine? Yes. They're a monthly magazine. It would come with a one of those plastic flexi discs. Oh, flexi. We loved all those on those fanzines that John Peel played. Well, um, absolutely. Um, it was before people started putting CDs, magazines put CDs on their covers. 
So FlexiPod, they just did, uh, they said, you're not doing anything. Do you want to do stuff? I went, yes, great. Thank you. And um, I remember I did Dollar, Bucks Fizz, Imagination, uh, Duran Duran, um, ABC. Oh, yeah. And, and I kind of developed this policy. I said, look, if it comes on the jukebox in my local pub, I want to do it. And they went, cool. Um, and 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 I was happy with that. And then literally about six months into that, they said to me, listen, we're going to do this one-off poster magazine. Uh, again, that's something that's gone, I, I, I would have thought. But it, it, you buy a magazine, but it folds out yes. to a poster. And they said, we're going to do a heavy metal one. Because I think Kerrang! had just launched and was doing pretty good um i wasn't aware of any i'm completely out of the loop uh, i was doing mescaline listening to weather report and uh still reading william burroughs and all those people and um uh they said you know because obviously i i'd worked with those bands that have you played pr and i'd written about them in sound they said, well, you just come in and just edit it, write it and edit it for us. I went, okay, what are you calling it? They went, we're going to call it Metal Fury. Cool. So uh, <laughs> I went in and um, I wrote the whole thing myself. I did a gossip column and I said it was the writer was Frank Fury. And it was just this made-up invective, slagging everybody off and taking the piss out of every rock band in the world and became the most popular fucking thing in this magazine because the first one sold out. So I said, well, let's do another one. And then it was monthly. And then um, at a certain point, I'm I, obviously I'm completely drug-free, which means I've, I'm now horny. And uh, I met this girl, and a bit like Jarvis Cocker, uh, she had just become an art student at St. Martin's. And she, and she was Greek. Um, uh, but she wasn't interested in common people. Um, and I was just I crazy about her. And she was okay about me. You know, uh, I, I'd, I hadn't had a woman for a few years. I've been on drugs. Now I've met this woman. and. It's all happening. And um, I, I just became embarrassed about the fact that I wasn't doing anything with my life. And she was. She went to St. Martin's as a mature student. And um, I thought, I've got to do something. And um, I rang up this guy I knew on Kerrang! magazine because I'd been slightly part of the beginning of it. Um, but I just said, look, you know, if there's anything you're looking for. And he said, we're looking for something. We can't get through to this guy, Trevor Rabin. Yes, had just reformed with Trevor Rabin. Mm. And they did the album with Owner of a Lonely Heart on it. And it was just fucking mega. Was that the, that was post Buggles, was it? Yes. This is literally after the Buggles. I think Jeff Downs might have still been in it. Um, I can't remember, but but as luck would have it, I'd known Trevor Rabin from my 
heavy publicity days, he'd produced one of the records I did PR for. And I just said, oh, I can get that. And, and then I rang Trevor and he did me a favour. Um, and so suddenly I got something in Kerrang. I had a friend on Time Out magazine. She gave me some stuff to do. Um, but Kerrang started offering a lot of work really quickly. And I was scrubbing pots and pans at Heathrow Airport at the time. So I went, Kerrang sounds good. Mm. Um, and that was that was that was the beginning of a real career thing for me. It turned into a real thing. I decided I would put all my eggs in this basket. I'd done sounds, I'd done virgin, I'd done all sorts of things. I didn't give a fuck. Um, I was going to write the great novel. I've gone from being a rock star to now I'm going to write the great novel. Meanwhile, I'll do this because it's fun and it pays money. Um, but by then I'd already, I'd already completely grasped that rock stars for me was so much more interesting to talk to than the punk people or the psycho Billy or I remember, remember links and that kind of, Yes, imagination. Rick Funk. I wrote about all those people, loved it. Um, but nobody, nobody could compare, honestly, to, to, to Phil Liner uh, doing a load of coke with Phil while he tells you these hilarious stories of these terrible things that have happened on the road. Gangsters, chicks, drugs, guns, you know. Ozzy Osbourne telling you stuff that make your eyes pop out. Um, and, and all these guys knew each other. They all used the same roadies, the same promoters. I remember doing a tour with Def Leppard in America. And Whitesnake were on the same tour, but a week ahead. And they were leaving messages on the dressing room wall and Oh, is Digby back to the... Yeah, he did them for us last month. You know, it, it was a real world. Yes. And they had great stories. And the irony was that... Um, you know, I always used to say that there's the gig, there's this, that. For me, the real show is when the gig's over. That's, that's where the gold is. And so I was never... Um, you know, I never... My wife always thinks I went off with loads of groupies. I didn't. I was spending a lot of my time with ugly, hairy men out of their mind, telling the most hilarious stories I'd ever heard in my life. Yes. Um, and, and these bands were big everywhere, all over the world. You know, I'd worked with a lot of pop stars in the UK. I mean, I worked with Heaven 17. Fucking hell, honestly. I used to go out with an air, air stewardess. And she said to me, she really summed it up. Because um, by, by the late 80s, I'm going club class or first class. I've, I've cracked it. And all these rock bands have millions and the labels have no one to spend the money on because you're not going to hear it on Radio 1. You're not going to see it on Top of the Pops. And you're certainly not going to fucking read about it in the NME. Enter Kerrang. Um, uh, Oh, I forgot what I was saying. Where were we? 
Um, Heaven 17. You w- oh, God. So this stewardess, she, I said, who are the worst? But she said, listen, on a plane, like a long transatlantic flight, the two best compartments are either economy, she said, because they're all pleased to be there. They're going to America. They're either Americans going home or they're people going to America. They're fucking ecstatic. She said, first class, they're the easiest of all. They, they've got nothing to prove. They just want to be left alone, you know, eat, snoo, just I'm cool. I don't need any, do I, I don't need anything. I've already got it. <laughs> she said, club class, fucking nightmare, fucking nightmare every time, because those are the people that think they're better than the people in economy, but no that they're not as good as the people in first class. To me, the pop stars were like club clubs. Very high maintenance. A lot of boring fucking wankers. I mean, honest to God, man. You know, I've been lucky to spend my life with artists, writers, painters, filmmakers, uh, builders, uh, chefs. I've worked in a lot of kitchens. Um... All of them were better than the pricks that you you, you got in UK pop. Uh, I can't say for now, but certainly in the 80s. Honestly, such. I hated them. I hated them. Um, was um, that generally or just that kind of new romantic? No, it was, it was. They're so insecure. I remember Paul Weller, you know, when uh, the jam had had a few hits, they had first, second album out, and um, 78, and I'm at the Speakeasy, and I'm with this lovely publicist, one of the big ones at the time, and um, they did The Who and loads of people and The Jam. Nice guy, not a tall punk. He was sort of American and had a perm, you know. And um, we were sitting there having a meal, and Weller just walked up to him and went, Oi, buy me a fucking drink. And the guy was like, Okay, Paul, okay, man, you know, take it easy, you know. Fucking tell me to take it easy, you cunt. I pay your wages, buy me a drink. I don't give a fuck what song he's written. He's a prick. I'm not saying he's like that now. Mm. And I, but I would like, you know, you put those guys in a room. I'll tell you another better story to do with Weller. The the rock people to me were, I've got to say real men, that sounds terrible, grown-up men, men who've been in the business for decades. They know they're never going to be on the cover of the NME. These fuckers work. They fucking work. And they get good at their instruments, they make their records, and they have their fans. And um, uh, and they tell great stories, and they make a shit ton of money, so everything is very pleasant. Uh, I've interviewed them in castles, in caves, in all kinds of places. Um, but the pop stars, they just... I did a... Martin Ware had a book come out last year, yes. and I, uh, I did a special thing for him at Blackworld's. And I hadn't seen him in 30-odd years. 
he's a bigger prick now than he was then. You know, he's just a fucking insufferable wanker. <laughs> um, I think you're going to say, and he just went, oh, my God, I'd hated, you know, what I was back then, but not. Um, uh, 20 years ago, you know, Roger Daltrey has this thing at the Albert Hall, the Prince's Trust, the, the Children's Cancer. Yeah. Does it every year. <clears throat> this particular year, Weller was doing something with his band and uh, Roger Daltrey and The Who were and are managed um, by oh, Bill Kirbishley, um, who did Time in the early 70s for a crime he didn't do and his reward was to manage The Who. Serious end of the business. Uh, his his brother was Alan Kirbishley, who managed Charlton. Oh yes. Well, Bill, you don't fuck around with Bill. You know, we're talking the era of the craze and all this. And um, Bill was also managing at the time Led Zeppelin. Well, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. Really. Yeah. And he arranged for Page. Page was going to come on and do something at this charity thing. And Weller's band were going to back him. And at the rehearsal, I was there. And at the rehearsal, Paige comes on, oblivious to any kind of divide. But Weller was clearly in, I'm a mod, he's a rocker. And they just were like making faces behind his back. And he didn't know they were making fun. And I'm watching this cringing. Um... And then Bill had obviously been watching it, and he stormed on the stage, and he grabbed Weller by the throat, and he put him up against the wall. And as he did, Weller's bodyguard came to move in. Without even looking, he went, you can fucking sit down, Sonny! <laughs> this huge cunt sat down, and he had Weller up against the wall, and he said, you fucking listen to me. That's Jimmy Page. If you don't fucking like it, I'll throw you out now. But if you want to stay here, Buck your ideas up, you stupid little twat. <laughs> you under and he's holding him by the throat. He goes, Do you under understand me? Like, yes, Bill. He goes, Mr. Kirbishley. He goes, Yes, Mr. Kirbishley. They let him go. So for me, um, I'd much rather listen to the stories Bill Kirbishley's got to tell. Yes. Than Paul Weller. <laughs> to me, it's not just a musical thing. It's a it's a life thing. You know, like when you and I first started talking, we started talking about ailments. <laughs> yes, this is true. Well, I like that. You know, to me, that's a sign of, I don't know, someone who knows something about life. Yes. Uh, people that know stuff about life, that have suffered the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, are the people I'm interested in and I like to talk to and, and get their stories. Um, yes, well, absolutely. No, it's 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 one of those. Yes, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it must be quite hard when you're a young kid and you're from a potentially working class background. You get the money, and then suddenly dealing with it. And you know, and I know that it's all going to be over before you can click your fingers because that five year narrative is quite a big one, isn't it? 
that those bands who just thought, oh, this is fantastic, a bit like people on the stock exchange, I guess, they think, God, I've been brilliant. And it's like, no, you've just been really lucky. You entered the market and it was just going up. It's going to go down. And if you're not clever and oops, you're not that clever. Yep, you just lost it all. It's a bit like that with pop stars, isn't it? They don't realise that. It's really like that. And and I think five years is uh, these days is 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 way more than they would have thought likely in the seven certainly in the 60s but definitely in the 70s and 80s i think two or three years was probably the optimum window um and that was another thing and is still for me that's attractive about these rock artists is that they've all been around forever they you have. know it's like a five year window it's a lifetime sentence I think with with a lot of those 80s bands, there was this sort of 12-month honeymoon period, mostly on the doll, the John Peel session, you know, the sing, the single, the John Peel session, that first album going well, transit band around the country. Because the UK is tiny. It's got, got all these venues in every city and town. Then that second album, they start to hate each other. And if they can get the third album, they hate each other and they realise they've made no money. And then they just got to get out haven't they it's a tricky it's a heartbreaking story but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it is a heartbreaking story you know it's like movies or anything it's like very very few make it um um and, and even the ones that do you know here today gone later today yes so when did you start thinking of writing were you still at Krang when you decided to write your first book well, I didn't decide. Um, it was offered to me. Um, it was a biography, the official biography of Ozzy Osbourne. And what had happened was, I, I was, it was explained to me, was that uh, three previous writers had had a go at it uh, and had been rejected. The first one, believe it or not, oh no, yeah, the first one, believe it or not, was Alistair Campbell, who went on to become Tony Blair's um PR. Yeah, yes. He because he was a pop columnist, I think, for the mirror. And so he had a go at it and they didn't like it. So then they gave it to a guy called Brian Harrigan on the Melody Maker, who was that guy on the Melody Maker that liked rock music, you know. He had a go at it and they rejected it. And then they gave it to Gary Bushell, who'd been a big writer on sounds, features editor but was now writing for The Sun. And um, he couldn't finish it, so he suggested to them, I come in, he would write the first half, I would write the second. We did that, and they didn't like what he had done, so he got fired, and they asked me to write the first half. Um, it was done in a matter of weeks while while drinking a ton of beer, sitting in my and smoking, sitting in my tiny little bedroom in those days on a typewriter. Right. Uh, all my early books were typewriters, yeah. My God, that's hard going, isn't it? The editing <laughs> process is, is quite tricky. I used to I used to dedicate my books to Tipex and um yeah, I really did. And did Not it come book, did, did it come together quite did you think actually that was quite okay. That was quite straightforward writing the book. The the Aussie one, yeah, because he's a quote machine. It's it's like an episode of The Simpsons, you know. I mean, he bit the head off a dove, he bit the head off a bat, he pissed on the Alamo, he got fired from Sabbath, he recorded some of the greatest heavy metal music of all time, and he's funny as fuck. Um, 
The next one I did was on a group called Marillion. Yes, good old fish. Yeah, well, this was their fish period. Kaylee became a hit, and suddenly they were this really, really big band. And that was a proper book. Yeah, that took months. I went through three typewriters on that. I wore them out. Um, and I toured with them. I interviewed all of them. And it was a completely exhaustive, full-on book. And I swore when it was done, I would never, ever, ever do it again because it was just too grueling. And I think I've done about 30, 35 since. Yes, because I talked to... Many of which were far more grueling. Because, um, was it Barney Hoskins? He said that he was never going to write... He, You know, after his last one, he's not... He hasn't written one since then, and he said he wouldn't because it just does you in. It's just so hard work. Did you Do you have that same feeling and commitment and experience? Yeah, I mean, uh, I do it for money. I, I do it for money... And also because I take pride in my writing work and I do, it, it gets, that's me at my best at, at that task. Um, and I do feel I've managed to take it places, new places. You know, I'm not doing the same book I did five years ago, 10 years ago. I think my best work has been my last couple of books in many ways yes. uh, so so for me there is a great satisfaction in doing some really good work and that's the the, the theatre if you like in which I can show you my best work when I'm doing a magazine article or a newspaper article or a podcast or television or whatever it is radio uh, that's me doing my best but that's not me going hey I think this is exceptional. This is this is as exceptional as I can ever be. Those are that's all in the books. Um, so I, I I was a writer. It was innate and it got absolutely fermented and and encouraged uh, through my background and just seeking a, an opportunity because I didn't uh, go to university to do a job that was interesting. That required no qualifications whatsoever. Yes. Uh, except as time goes on, of course, you do pick up a lot of stuff, and suddenly people will seek you out because you're the guy that's known to be. I mean, in the 80s and 90s, I was I was everybody's friend. You know, I could be on the road with you, and the most outrageous thing could happen, and you'd never read about it. Um at the same time, the stories would be full of apparently outrageous goings on and crazy shit and funny stuff and dark stuff. But the really crazy, funny, dark shit, I never, ever, ever put into print. And so I built up this reputation as a man you could do business with. Oh, he worked for record companies. He had his own PR company. I mean, he's the guy's cool. Because what, what you learn when you're not a music journalist and you're in the business is that, you know, probably the only person less well regarded by musicians and the music business, music journalists are literally all but one from the bottom on the totem pole. Mm. Bottom of the totem pole 
are their fans. They can't stand to have them around. It's like having the noisy children around. You know, you, you can't spoil it. You can't say, oh, for fuck's sake, shut up, you stupid little bastard. You have to say, oh, Timmy, oh, that's not quite how we do it. Don't you worry. Oh, thank you. You know, oh, thank you. You know. Music journalists are just one notch up. Right. Uh, as soon as they leave, everybody goes, oh, I thought it was a bit of a cunt. What did you think? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's 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 honestly that's it. So I'd already discovered all of that by 79-80. So by the time I'm on Kerrang in 84, 85 and onwards, um I don't want to be that music journalist. I do not want to be, oh no, he, we're gonna do it. Can we let him in now? Go on then. But can you get rid of him after 15 minutes? You know, these are these are Everything that goes on right before you walk in the room. And um, I just didn't want to be that guy. So I was everybody's friend and they trusted me and it went really, really well for a long, long while. And then I got older and I got married and I had children and I no longer gave a fuck. Um, I left Kerrang in 91. Uh, I helped start Classic Rock magazine in 98. Um, and then left in 2004. Um, and at a certain point, um, I really, really, you know, when I, the books I've been writing for the last nearly 20 years, I don't write them for the bad. People often say to me, oh, your Eagles book, what did, what did Don Henley think of it? I'm like, I don't know. Who gives a fuck? Yeah. You know, <laughs> I haven't written the book hoping Don's going to go, oh, this guy really gets me. Maybe we should have a beer. Yes. Give a fuck, mate. Um, I write it literally for one person, and that is the reader. The reader. And I treat the reader with as much respect as I would wish to be treated, because I am the all-time reader. Um, and I know when it's real and I know when someone's bringing it um and if you try and second guess that or go oh Robert wouldn't like that you know oh no one leaves the room till we find Alan's glove you know um I just sort of fuck all that I I, I want to do this for that person and myself and if somebody doesn't like it I don't care Big fucking deal. Well, I'm off the Christmas card list. It does, I don't care. Oh, they'll never speak to you again. I don't care. You know, <laughs> yes. Did you read the book? Did you like the book? Was the book really fucking good? And I know from uh, the people that buy the books and read them and get in touch with me, they love it. They love it. And um, And the main message I think I always give people is, you know, people ask me, oh, what's your favourite album? Or, you know, what, what was the best gig you ever went to? I don't have one. Uh, I have two, I have hundreds. Um, and I don't really think about that. I think about the story. Yes. The and story. thinking is what you've got to do. I mean, most music biographies are just dreadful. They just repeat the same old shite 
I remember 10 years ago doing a book on Black Sabbath. And my editor at the time, brilliant guy, um, he said, oh, they came from Birmingham. Wasn't their music influenced by, like, the sound of the factories? I said, where did you read that fucking bullshit? I mean, that, that's something someone in the NME would say. Or, no, it had nothing to do with fucking factories or machines. They were listening to Jimi Hendrix and the first and the first Led Zeppelin album, and they were smoking a shit ton of dope. And this is what they came up with. Yeah. Heavy I think I think that guy was. You remember the Iggy Pop story, didn't he, in Detroit, where Iggy was. He'd always say that he'd hear this thump of the car factory. He probably just compared it to that. But I'm interesting. Sure. But interesting with Black sure Sabbath was that um, I always remember the bass player. I think it was the bass player said, you know, that he was listening to the planets, didn't he? And he said he heard this rift, and then he started playing it, and that became the caravan. Giza wrote the words. Tony Iommi was the one that came up with the riff. And it was me he told that story to was for a mojo piece. Right. And um, because I, I I knew them, I'd done their PR, blah, 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 blah. And um, he was like, yeah. I loved Austin. I fucking loved Austin. I'm like, my favourite one is Mars. You know, I'm like, okay. He said, so um, that the song was black sabbath and it literally goes down 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 and if you think of mars and holes it's or ripped him off um and uh and you gotta say it worked it worked so well but he's a brilliantly talented musician and um created many 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 fantastic uh musical moments and and now i think there's a ballet isn't there with black sabbath music that's just been um yes uh is out on stage as we talk actually i just saw the review or read the review which oh was exciting. God, what did it say they loved it they said it was good they said that you know the music i mean yeah because to- tony comes on at the for a special performance and does a bit of a rock moment it, i think it's i can't remember where i read it it might have been in the guardian culture review but you almost think yeah i could almost go to that if they just play you know black sabbath music with ba- for ballet you know it's like well that that could work well i think we we now live in a world where you know we have influencers boxing you know, it's no longer Mike Tyson versus Holyfield. It's it's Jim Ko versus Bad Ned from YouTube. You know, we we have um, you know going quite a way back now. Jerry Springer, the Opera. You know, yes, this um, is true. Over ten years ago, someone approached me to try to to write a libretto. Uh, for an opera on the Osbournes. Uh, that, like a lot of things, not, uh, nothing ever came of it. But I think we live in that era now where we go, oh, ballet for Black Sabbath. I'm going to, because you just said I might go and see it. How many ballets have you been to see? Well, I used to go to the Theatre Royal a lot, a bit like because I used to get a free Did ticket. you go to the ballet? Only through the being on the guest list and saying, do you want to come to the ballet? Do you want to see the Northern Ballet Company? It's like, 
um yeah okay i'll go and see them do you know the gatsby or you know swan lake you know i sort of ticked it off well, but i, I didn't the, I, I didn't particularly get it thing. you didn't go you don't you didn't go yeah you know i haven't seen the ballet in ages what's on or it'd be a phone these days. What's up? Oh, Swan Lake. Let's go. I mean, I, I, I've watched it on TV. I, I I like to think of myself as someone who who is open to every kind of artistic, creative endeavour. So I've enjoyed a lot of ballet. Um, but I've never been. But then you go a Black Sabbath ballet and people go, oh, I'm, yeah, let's go. It reminds me of in the late 80s, I had a girlfriend and uh, we went to see Ken Dodd at the London Palladium. Um, were we Ken Dodd fans? No. But the idea of going to see Ken Dodd, it just tickled us. It, well, you know, yes. Uh, these the days, call, yes. In fact, it tickled us with a tickling stick. But it, it was one of those sort of guilty pleasures things. It, it, we wouldn't have called it that. We just thought it was very kind of post something or other to... I guess I guess we did a lot of irony in the eighties as well, didn't we? We, you know, I think or oh, there's a time in your life where irony is quite popular, and then you get a bit bored of irony and you think I don't care. I either want to do it because I want it or not, but not because I'm being a bit ironic. That's what I think. Anyway, look, Tony, Tony even brought his perfume out a few years ago, which I oh, was I quite... know it was only a couple of years ago. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. did he give you a copy? Did he give you a no? Bottle? Did he hell? Uh, mm-hmm. I would now listen, David. I'm fidgeting because I'm desperate to go to the loo. So yeah, I just but, can I just I, just just before we do the 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 laboratory moment and goodbye, I would just love to just quickly hear how you you know your Lemmy book because Lemmy's Motorhead means so much to me. How right. did was this a? I will give me a second. Okay, I'll, I'll hit pause. I'll hit pause. Do you need to record? Yeah. So yeah. So Lemmy. So where did and how did this project come about? Because um, obviously Motorhead means so much in my life, um, in so many ways. Yeah. So Lemmy, how did was this a was this one that you said? Look, I'd like to do, or did it come from the publisher? No, no. Um, this was all me. Um, uh, I, I'd known Lemmy for really a long time from the first met him in the 70s but got to know him well in the 80s um and we had always stayed in touch and then in about 97 i was told because for i did his pr for a while in the mid 90s as well i was his publicist i started doing publicity again for a year or two in the mid 90s was that with play hard Yes, play hard, work hard. Who was the main guy who ran that at the time? Roland, Roland Himes. Right, is he still with us? No, he sadly died. Um, Oh, I have his funeral thing here on the shelf somewhere. He died a year or so ago. He had cancer. Um, His coffin was delivered to the church. on a motorcycle because because he was you know a biker um anyway what were we saying we were talking about uh lemmy yeah so so um i'd done his pr in the mid 90s but we knew each other oh my god and um 
in about 97, uh, I'd been told he really wasn't well and that, in fact, he might be about to snuff it. And I'd just been doing a little bit for Mojo. And I met Matt Snow was the editor and I mentioned it to him. And I said, you know, maybe we should get something with him because he's going to go. And he said, yeah, brilliant. Do it. Um, So long story short, uh, the next time he was in London, always at the same hotel, I went to see him and we spent a whole night uh, doing interviews about his whole life. And um, I can't remember the exact details. It's such a long time ago, but I never wrote the story for Mojo in the end. And in fact, the interview, interview, like five interviews, it was hours and hours. Um, I never did anything with it. And um, moving house a couple, I did, it was done on a, it's how long ago it was done on a little mini disc cassette player. They were lovely. And uh, um, so years go by and I'm talking to him. And uh, I said, listen, do you remember? Oh, yeah. I said, you know, um, I still have all those interviews. He's like, well, fucking put them out. I said, well, I will. But I'm thinking a book. I mean, if I do a book, you you do a new interview because obviously it's 20 years later. He was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. Lemmy loved being interviewed, you know. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, no, you know. Um, He was up for it. And uh, uh, I did the deal for the book in 2014. And in 2016, I still hadn't written it. Um, And by this time, he's very ill. I mean, properly ill. To the point where, you know, he's on a mobility scooter. He doesn't recognise a lot of people when he sees them. He shouldn't have been out working. I mean, yeah, because he was he was still play. He played Germany in December, and he died just after Christmas, didn't he? There was a clip on YouTube around that time where he was doing some big festival in Germany or somewhere, and um, they were trying to do Overkill, and he was singing the lyrics to Ace of Spades. So they kept stopping and starting again, and he kept singing the lyrics to Ace of Spades. Um, and eventually they had that clip taken down, you know. Um, but no, he was not in good shape. I personally don't think he should have been kept on the road. I do know his manager. I spoke to him about it a while, a long while after, and he said he wanted to be on the road. What else was he going to do? Sit at home and gaze out the window. Um, that's where Lemmy wanted to be. I think he yeah he went he went in the way he probably would have wanted to go, playing a fucking video game, sitting at home. Yes, after Christmas. Yeah, with, with the owner of the Rainbow sitting with him, Michael Magliari. Um, so, uh, funnily enough, I was supposed to do a final phone interview with him uh, just before his birthday. And it was, you know, Christmas. And I just, I, I was going away with my family for Christmas. And I just said, listen, why don't we leave it? Let's leave it till after Christmas. I'm going away. You've got your birthday. It's hectic. Um, 
And then we were away and I got a phone call second or third morning, about six in the morning, saying he died. And, um, you know, would I talk about it for the radio or something like that? There was a lot of calls like that that day. And um, at that point, I thought, fuck it. And I thought, I've got to get those interviews out. So I, I did the book around that. Um, but I did also use it as an opportunity to interview people. His old manager, Doug Smith, who I'd known very well in the late 70s and early 80s, um, he went on to manage Chumbawamba when they had that huge hit, uh, and Hawkwind, and Girls' School, and lots of other people. And um, uh, he, he, he comes over every now and again. He came over around that time, and I spent a couple of days with him going through stuff, and Stacia, and... Um, I knew that camp very, very well. Phil Taylor, I knew and had interviewed Andy, um, sorry, not Andy, Eddie Clark. Brian Robertson was a dear friend. Um, so, um, yeah, I used it as an opportunity to lean on those interviews, which when I played them back was amazing. Um, very funny, but very insightful. You know, he's very camp Lemmy. Um, one time I went to visit him. That wasn't me. I'm getting I'm getting false memory. <laughs> it was Doug told me this story. He said one time he went over to his flat and they were going somewhere to a meeting or whatever. And Lemmy answered the door in full Confederate. American Confederate soldier uniform. And Doug was like, you're not going out like that. And then he was like, what, what's wrong with it? I think I look pretty smart, you know. <laughs> and so they had to go out like that, you know, with Lemmy looking like fucking sheriff of Dodge City. Yes. Um, and he, you know, he, yeah, he, he took care of, once he got to LA, he took care of his hair and his teeth and, I do remember that book by Chris. Is it Sullivan or though Sullivan who did the book? He did a book on rebels and Lemmy's in it. And bizarrely, he asked him what perfume he liked. And he went, Chanel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, was, I remember going up to his bedroom once and, um, you know, he had a very, very impressive collection of Nazi memorabilia. His daggers were amazing. <laughs> yeah. And, and not just Nazi, though, but First World War. And um, I remember him showing me some Indian swastikas that came from the late 19th century, you know, um, used at weddings and things. And um, so he's got endless biographies on Hitler and, you know, um, but by his bed, a very nicely made bed, but kind of musty, because um, I don't know if he did a lot of sleeping, but um, uh, right by the bed, P.G. Woodhouse, you know, halfway through with the page turn. So excellent. Loved Peter Woodhouse. He was very kind of erudite gentleman when he wanted to be, you know. Well, I remember uh, those two films. There was one was a sort of Channel 4 film, you know, one of those documentaries. Another one was that movie, Lemmy. And I do remember, I loved the Channel 4 one because it was a young woman. You know, I saw that. It was good. And, yeah. And it was just a charming one. You know, he just liked being on his own, reading his book. 
And I could imagine when you're in a band, what you want is people to shut up and just have some space and not be talking. And let me, I think I got that impression that you could just be happy not talking all day, doing the job, doing the sound check, and then just going home, just reading a nice book almost. <laughs> Ish. Well, yeah, Ish. Pretty, pretty much. I mean, you know, he had his own fruit machine that he took on the road with him. Now that started in the eighties. Um, obviously by the nineties, it's, you've got more sort of digital. It wasn't like a one arm bandit. He used to love those things. Um, he, um, quite often you'd see him in the pub or in latter days in the rainbow in LA standing on his own used to be at the fruit machine and then by the end the video machine you know and uh, you didn't go near him you know you you um I remember many years ago in some pub in Ladbroke Grove seeing him on the one-armed bandit and just going all right let me he's like not at all engaging with you because this is him now okay so you realize that wasn't the moment um and he was like they just you know on the road his most talkative would probably be about 3 a.m i remember coming down on a tour bus once uh to use the loo and it was downstairs and, and he was down there doing his fucking airfix models and all this shit because he's speeding out of his brain and um and we just had a really nice chat uh, no drink or anything he was drinking but i mean I, I was in bed i mean i just got out of bed and i'm going back in a minute he um right to the end he was taking his drugs you know he he refused to compromise in any of that way and and while i feel that was foolish of him in many ways and I feel he must have missed out on a lot of the things in life that console the rest of us or or exalt the rest of us, whether it's uh, your health or children or, or or family or whatever it is. Um, uh, he had deliberately, intentionally walked away from that. And um, and had no intention of ever going back. And it just fitted him like a glove, um, especially once he got to L.A. Yes. Uh, they were far more understanding of the fact that um, he wanted to live his life exactly how he wanted to live his life. You know, that's a very American philosophy, and especially so in LA amongst the creative community. You know, if you can make your living out of being creative, you can live how you fucking like, mate. That's your privilege. Yes. Uh, so I'm sure, I'm sure there were lots of things in his life that he must have thought us poor fools will never, will never get any insight into because we're just too soft and and, and scared, you know. Um, I always admired him, always admired him. Uh, he wasn't perfect. He had a very jealous, bitter streak, and he was very camp. <laughs> he really yes, he never, he never forgot, Dave, he never forgave Dave Brock, did he? He didn't ever slightly 
he didn't from... forgive anybody. And and like a lot of people, he was his own worst enemy. He would cut his nose off to spite his face. Um, he would rather have mediocre musicians around him that did what they were told than some really gifted people that challenged him. And I don't mean necessarily technically gifted. I mean, Brian Robertson was very technically gifted, but Eddie Clark, who wasn't at all technically gifted, was the special source, you know, coming up with those riffs. I mean, Lemmy essentially came up with one riff his whole life, and it's right at the beginning of Ace of Spades. Dun, 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 dun. I can't do it again. Yeah. Dun, galloping bass there. Because he played it like a guitar, because he was never a bass player. He he lied about it to join Hawkwind. Yes, his his um, gig. Yeah. So uh yeah, it was I'm not talking about musical proficiency, but the reason that lineup really excelled was because they were equals and they saw each other as equals, and they told him to fuck off and don't be a prick and, and all the stuff that you need to hear sometimes. Um and he he fucked it all up for fame and fortune. Um, or, or didn't he? Or, or maybe he, did he fuck it up? Well, interesting. Yes. Right all along, you know. Well, his Wendy O. Williams period wasn't good, was it? That was a disaster. It, I think he was in that zone where everything I touch turns to gold. You know, Ace of Spades had been a number one album live. Uh, uh, no Sleep Till Hammersmith had been a number one album. Uh, he did the thing with Girls School. That was top five, top of the pops. He, I don't think he thought he could do any wrong. And then he did, was it Stand By Your Man? Something like that with Wendy O. Williams and that made Eddie leave and it never really recovered. No, but I'm, and also getting rid of Vic Mail was a disaster. His production work was stunning. Is it Vic? Vic Mail, yeah. But yeah. Uh, again, why? Because Vic wouldn't take any nonsense. I mean, Vic was, you know, a character as well. Um, but he got them. He totally got them, but not to the point of, oh, you guys are amazing. He got what might just be okay, might be good. There might be something here. I can get it. And he got it. And, uh, and yeah, you're right. If they uh, hadn't messed with that, who knows? Um, but they did. And I must admit, their last couple of albums, they had a particular producer who seemed to give them a better sound than they did in that kind of middle period, which is a little bit hit and miss and sometimes quite miss. I quite like what they did at the end for the last couple of albums, but I think they had a particular guy who just managed to capture something quite brilliant and i liked some of his lyrics in his latter years so he, he was a very fine lyricist um did you ever read the lyrics to it was a, a lyric he wrote for an ozzy osbourne song oh yes that one i don't i don't want to change things no no i I love I love you forever, which he does a great duet with Doro on one of those live concerts, which is just um, I don't know if you've seen it. Love you forever. That's a, actually a ballad, <laughs> so one of the few Motorhead ballads that he ever did. I think it was on the album 1919. There was a, a track he did for the Aussie album 
Osmosis, which Ozzy sang. And I can't remember what the hell it was called. And I didn't know he had written it because I just had a cassette originally. And I'm listening to this thing thinking, fucking hell, this is, you know? I, I you know, I, I, I didn't listen to an Ozzy Oswald album expecting great lyrics. I mean, uh, but this was like first rate. This was like, fuck me. Who wrote this? John Lennon? Dylan? Who wrote this? You know, Lemmy. Lemmy wrote it. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll email it to you. I'll so, you know, as soon as we finish, I will remember and I'll... I do remember him saying he, in a slightly bitter way, he's like, any time we've got an award was a sort of song I wrote for someone else <laughs> rather than a band, you know, Motorhead. So yeah, yeah. there you go. And just yeah. on, and just briefly there, on your last book, you've done one on the Eagles. This is this is the, the latest book that um, came out. Did you start this in a lockdown period? Was this your lockdown project? No. Uh, no. Um, originally did the deal for the Eagles book in the summer of 2018 and um i think at that point they were going to be here in the summer of 2020 um and they weren't calling it a farewell tour it was the hotel california tour but i'd figured out that in 2022 it would be 50 years since the first Eagles album. Um, and so I kind of sold it on that. And um, I was spending a lot, quite a lot of time in Los Angeles at, at that moment. And then in 2019, I was there nearly all the time doing other stuff. But while I was doing the other stuff, it all overlapped. At one point, I was doing a book about the rainbow because in 2022, be the 50th anniversary of their opening night which elton john um played a set for in 72 um i was doing i was ghosting the memoirs of a guy called doc mcgee who these days manages kiss but famously managed motley Crue and bon jovi and all kinds of people um and i was writing a book about la metal in the 80s you know the big hair. Yes, we we love that period. Poison, Bon Jovi. None of these. The doc book got written and will come out, but hasn't yet because of the pandemic. But the other two things died because of the pandemic. Um, but 2019, I spent so much time in LA and uh, other places, Miami, Nashville, um, and I was using that time to interview people about the eagles as well um and then you know what happened next and it all went to shit um i mean my publishing company closed down more or less well why am i telling you this you know what happened yes everything ended all the plans that we had in place well, not all of us, but um, certainly me, gone. And um, so I just backburned the whole thing. Um, and I got on with doing other things. I think I've, I've written about five books in the three and a half years since the pandemic started. I had to because all my other uh, forms of income were gone. Um, so when I finally sat down to 
right the eagles uh, all the original high ideas, and I would talk to this person, do a deep dive on that. I threw it out the window and I said, you know what? Because by then I put them away now, but I, I also had dozens of books on the Eagles and DVDs and magazines. And, you know, th there are thousands of wonderful articles on the Eagles out there. And I'd kind of digested it all. And I thought, well, let's do something more interesting in a literary sense. Because um, I hate boring biographies. None of my books begin with Once Upon a Time. None of my books begin at the beginning. They quite often begin at the end. You know, I, I, it, uh, you know, if it, it's like if it was a book about 9-11, the book would begin with the planes hitting the towers. That yes. would be page one. And then you might retrace the steps at some point. Um, and I thought I'd done something similar with Hendrix in 2019, which I was really happy with. Um, and I thought, let's do it again, but with the Eagles. And because I love L.A., I've lived in L.A., I love the 70s, I do still um, despise the kind of knee-jerk reaction that groups like the Eagles uh, inspire. I can't say the enemy anymore because I haven't read it for decades and it's not even a print thing anymore, but you know what I mean. You know, yes, absolutely. You know, they've been the, 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 they've been bullied by everybody. Um, and so, you know, it appeals to me to go, because, like I say, so much orthodoxy, I hate the repetition. You know, oh, oh, heavy metal music came from the factories. No, it came from the art schools. Um, you know, uh, uh, um, John Bonham, when John Bonham died, Led Zeppelin died because he was one of the important four elements. And when you took one of those elements away, the whole thing, I mean, Give me a fucking break. That's in every Zeppelin book. And it's not even close to the truth. If Bonham had died after the second Led Zeppelin album, the first one to go to number one in America and here, the one with whole lot of love, mm. the breakthrough. If he had died, do you think they'd have gone, well, we can't continue because... You see an important of the four elements, one of them. Bonham was a junkie. Page was a junkie. Grant was a junkie. Robert Plant fucking hated all of them at that point. None of them had turned up for his son's funeral. Um, he fucking hated Zeppelin. He was happy to see the whole thing go down the shitter. Bonham was dead. There was no important element. They were already fucking dead. They were already fucking dead. Nothing they would have done would have been any good at all. So this is what I'm talking about is, is I, I, you know, you have to think and you have to not care what they think and you have to not repeat this bilge that builds up. When I did the Hendrix book, Jesus Christ, man. You find all these quotes from Eric Clapton saying, 
Well, we just treated him like a white man. You know, like that's, you see how cool we were. You know, this is how nice we are. We treated the black man like a white man. And it's like, are you fucking kidding me? So my Hendrix book is very much from a black perspective. Um, and it goes very, very deep on who he was before he got to London and how he despised these fucking English white bread pussies that were just fucking, you know, groveling to him. He couldn't believe his fucking luck. Um, uh, so uh, that's what I tried to do with the Eagles. Um, yeah, I have a new book which came out a couple of weeks ago. It's not really a Mick Wall book. Um, this is it. Elton John, we love him. <laughs> uh, my friend Mark Blake, a couple of years ago, did a book for these people. It was called Magnifico, the A to Z of Queen, and it did really, really well. And um, I share an agent with Mark. <laughs> he did, did he do Peter Grant recently, didn't he? He did. Well, he did. Yes, he did. Working with Peter's son Warren. That was strange. At one point, when he was researching it, he uh, sent me a, a photo he'd just taken on his phone. He was going through some of Peter's old papers and he had a letter from me to Peter in like 94. In fact, he found a few of them um, because I'd approached Peter to write his biography. Yes. And he had agreed. And we had a deal on the table. And I was going uh, to, these days I ghost memoirs as well, but this was going to be, not a ghosted memoir, but an auto, uh, a biography of the official biography with his blessing. And the fucker died, you know. Yes. How inconsiderate. I mean, what a bastard to the end he was. Absolutely. Uh, he was another guy that I absolutely loved talking to. Hilarious. You know, all this kind of, oh, he was scary. Yeah, I know, but hilarious. You know, I mean... Great stories. He said they used to come back with suitcases with false bottoms. They used to put all the cash in the false bottoms. And and um, no self-respecting tour manager would, wouldn't have a suitcase without a false bottom. Not in 1968, you know. No, absolutely. Uh, uh, so, But Mark had found this stuff. And, um, and some letters I'd complete on a... No, it's probably on a computer now. But to Pete, oh, Peter, it's lovely to uh, see you the other day. Um, you have a lovely house. He weighed nothing by the time I got to him. He's really thin. He really did look quite poorly, didn't he? He was really ill, yeah. Yes, God. Yeah, no, it was just interesting. And then I think he did one on John Entwistle, didn't he, last year, Mark? Was that Mark? Yeah, you're probably right. It wasn't Paul Reese, was it? No, it was. Some... No, I'm sure you're right, David. I'm sure you're right. He's very good, Mark. Um, so I steamed him with this. He's now doing one on Pink Floyd, I think. Right. So uh, it's called Hercules um, because that's Elton's middle name. 
We love him. Yes, I know. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road was one of those. Because basically, when I just, just briefly, but my brother, who was seven years older, and I was very, you know, with my glam period, I also used to sneak into his room and he had, yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, Barkley, James Elvis, uh, Harvest albums, but he did also have Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road, and Sergeant Pepper. This was kind of the earliest mid 70s period, 73, 74. So I consumed those records really religiously for quite a few years. So um, Elton and uh, the work of Black Sabbath and Deep Purple Burn was, you know, ensconced <laughs> in my brain. No, no, no Led Zeppelin. No, he didn't somehow like Led Zeppelin. I bought Led Zeppelin for when I was in my early 80s with, um, yes, Hotel California. So there you go. You know, I caught up, but for some reason, some unknown reason. We all do, though, don't we? I mean, I, I, I had to catch up with Dylan and Hendrix and um, and some bands I wasn't particularly crazy about, like Cream or The Who some great tracks but i i i couldn't quite it wouldn't connect for me but then the doors totally connected you know all, all these bands that were already dead by the time i'd reached album interest age yes uh, i think we all do that we all kind of if we're like yeah you know, i say that i don't know i mean i've got three children uh the eldest daughter has just turned 23 and she's she's now discovering some of that music from her point of view from the past and it, and it can be unlike you and i where it's probably just slightly the previous decade or some year it could be 40 years ago or it could be 3 years ago yes. there's that kind of awareness in her mind of the space it's just individual tracks that really knock her out and yeah, I I, I, I remember I thinking that. I didn't know you like Joni Mitchell. Oh, is it? <laughs> this is. Yes. Yeah, because I sort of realised when I was at a certain age, I thought I only got to go back to the previous decade to catch up, whereas, like you said, your daughter has to go back 50 years, and you think, oh, yeah, God, that is a long time. Could you imagine it, you know, trying to sort of then capture the whole essence of popular music from 1963? It's going to be was, a... But she was about... Um... 14 um i she had that uh video game video game computer game guitar hero right for that it would be, be this thing sort of in the shape of a guitar but it would be like buttons instead of strings and and the, the face of it was slash from guns and roses perfect and um I was going by her room one day and I could hear Sweet Child of Mine playing the 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 rip. Do, 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 do. Um and I stuck my head around a little cheerfully and I sort of went, Oh, what are you listening to? She went, It's a song called Sweet Child of Mine. It's by a group called Guns and Roses. Have you ever heard of them? And I didn't even know where to begin. I just went, Yeah, yeah, I know, I know them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good, good song, you know. <laughs> nice boys. What am I going to say? And it wouldn't matter to her anyway, you know. So who knows what our children think these people are? I mean, the Elton John book, uh, uh, I started not 
not singing the whole song, but, you know, the catchy chorus bit, you know, of a few of his songs. And uh, they knew most of them. My youngest daughter went to, was studying musical theatre. She knew all of them. You know, apparently Elton is just, all those songs are just ingrained in that world. Right. Um, so they sort of see him as whatever they see him as. And I still sort of think of him as the bloke who did Goodbye Hillary Road, you know. Yes. Well, it was Harmony, that track on side four, that album, which I can't believe you said that. I can't believe, because I had to listen to all this stuff for the first time in decades. Harmony. Do you know they nearly didn't put that track on the album? I know. They nearly didn't put that. It was like, ah, it's not all that. I can't believe you said that. Yeah, it's very funny talking to you, David. <laughs> you, know, you, you start off with ailments, of which right in front of my mind, and then Manchester United, and very strange. It feels like I, I'm not reading my mind so much, but as if we just have a complete connection. There's a yes. <laughs> thing that we're sharing. I know, and we and we still get confused why Paddy Roach was the only number two they had. Paddy Roach, <laughs> with all that, you know, and Alex wasn't even a great keeper, but Paddy Roach. I often wonder what happened to some of those people, by the way. I Google them occasionally and I think, no, but what happened to Paddy Roach? His story, I want his story. Yeah, yeah. No, I do that all the time. Or watching TV shows. Um, that, uh, recently I've had a had a, a spate of watching shows that I originally watched sort of pre-pandemic going all the way back to you know the first decade of the century and uh, a couple in particular which um i love oh my god seeing them again now uh some year nearly 10 years later and um i i immediately google and see what happened to them and 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 but also get the insight on the series you know because whether it's music or tv or a book or whatever you know why am i telling you you know but you can just go go deep you know find out more yes absolutely and talking of which you remember do you remember watching the comic strip and uh, I mean, most of them were quite hit and miss. There was a lot of miss, but a couple of good ones. And they had the one where they did a spaghetti Western one and they go to that kind of shack in the country. Yes. And the guy goes, "Put a, what? everyone likes the eagles. Do you remember that line? <laughs> but you see, I mean, that was obviously they said it because it's humorous because, you know, really no nobody's allowed to say they like the eagles. You know? I just think that's such a great line. It's Do you such... remember when they did the the bad news? Yeah, and then they did more bad news a few years later. Colin on the phone with his library books. <laughs> well, in the vet, I'm getting out of this van if you don't say we're heavy metal. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. Spider, why does it take ten hours to your do your drum kit? I just thought it was such a classic. <laughs> Yeah, Rick Mail, a bit more in the cans, please. Uh, <laughs> just, just, oh, it was just the way, just, just, just. Yeah, it was amazing. It was. Uh, to well, be honest, well, I think it's up there with Spinal Tap, actually. But oh, listen, totally. But when, when they did more bad news, that was 87 and um, I did a 
a cover story on them as bad news for Kerrang! magazine. I used to do a, a weekly show for Sky called the Monsters of Rock show. And I had them on that in character as well. And then I fucking went on tour with them to do a story. Um, and it was just, they were just fucking hilarious. But they got it. I mean, the thing is, they they really, you know, Viv, I would call him Viv, Aid Edmondson was a rock fan. He, he he was quite into progressive rock and acid rock and things like that. Rick wasn't into any of that, but he really was a rock star. I mean, there was no difference between him on stage or off. When I yes. did the show, there was no difference between when we were actually filming and when we were sitting around waiting it was quite exhausting to be honest and that dear listener is going to be the end of the interview a massive thank you to mick wall for giving me the time for that interview if you want to find out any more about his books just um google mick wall put in writer author and you'll find them they're all there on amazon and probably other uh, such sites and also available from every good bookshop and like I said his latest one Eagles Dark Desert Highway How America's Dream Band Turned Into a Nightmare has just come out that was May 2023 this has been the C86 show David Easter if you want to contact me you can on Facebook Twitter Instagram just do C86 show and all these interviews have been archived aren't you lucky you can find those on Spotify iTunes Podbeams. true anyway have a great week stay safe